you have your Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to the book of Esther, or maybe you have it on a tablet or pad, or you can use the Bibles in the racks in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one with you when you leave today. There's some stacked on the, on the table in the back. Just grab one of those, and we want you to own a copy of God's Word. It's our gift to you. Um, before we get into the teaching of Esther this morning, just a heads up of where we're headed after this. We've done uh, four weeks of heroes now. There's two more to go. So next week, we're going to do uh, King David. And the week after that, we're going to do Daniel. And then um, we're stepping into a new territory, um, area that we haven't gone before. I'm going to uh, call a a three-week series called You Asked For It, okay? And so we have a website or an email address set up. It's called questions at newhopehazlet.com. And you can send your questions into that email address. And we're going to pull from those questions that come in topics for the three weeks that come up after the Heroes series, all right? So it's on you to send questions in, questions at newhopehazlet.com, and then it's on God to help me through that, all right? Because I'm sure it's going to be everything from did Adam and Eve have belly buttons all the way to whatever, okay? So we'll take it on. You go ahead and send those things in, things that are on your heart, and and we'll see where that goes. Before uh, I pray, or before we get into the teaching, I'd like to pray with you. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that you want to speak to us. It's evident through your word. The very fact we have your word is the evidence that you want to speak. And I know that you want to speak to each person individually. We're in relationship with you if we name the name of Christ, and so therefore you want us to hear from you. I would ask that you would do that through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would guide and lead. You say that your word is alive and that it's active. I pray for that to be the the sense that people leave here with today, myself included, that we have experienced you and we have encountered you. It's in Jesus' name we will ask for that. Amen. So in church world, uh, we use the word providence. In, in outside the church world, secular world uses the word providence. It, it tends to have different meanings to it. When you use the word providence in a biblical sense, it, it kind of means this. If you boil it right down to one point, it means nothing happens by chance. There, there's no such thing as luck from a biblical perspective. Everything that God does is for a purpose. So we would say it this way. Providence means God's at work in our lives. Scripture speaks very specifically to that. Philippians 2.13, it says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now that concept of the will part is translated in the Greek language, desire. And, And not like desire, I see an ice cream sundae and I want it. Not that kind of desire, okay? It's desire with an intent, with a studied intent, the Greek language actually says. A studied intent to be part of fulfilling a purpose, a a planned purpose. So when God uses this, it is God who is at work in you both to will, it means that you've got to focus on what His will is to the point where you want to be part of accomplishing His purposes. So we understand whether we live on a farm or we live in a city, God's always at work. And he's especially at work in the lives of his people. Scripture says this, Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now we know along with those thoughts that God also presents opportunities. 
He presents opportunities to you and I. You don't have to be a pastor for God to come alongside and say, I want you to join me in my work. And sometimes it's very, very obvious things that he presents to us. Our responsibility is to decide how are we going to respond to that. Will we join him in the work or not? It's part of the free will package, okay? We can be a follower of Christ and still be in rebellion, someone who decides not to join him, but that's not God's will for us, so he tries to make it plain what he wants us to do. So when you and I are presented with choices, here's our task. Our task is to sort through what he's presented to us to the degree that we want to understand God's will in a situation. That's why Philippians 2.13 is so important. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, you're going to study. You're going to study his intent, his purposes. Here's the complication. Given that human instincts tend to want to lean away from dangerous situations, things that might threaten us socially, relationships, things that might even threaten us physically, we tend to want to duck away from those things when God is saying, no, don't do that. Lean into my understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me. I will direct your path. That's God's desire, but our human instinct wants to lean away from things that sometimes he presents to us. You'll get a perfect case in point this morning of that, what I just shared with you, with Esther. Esther is an amazing individual who is presented with an enormous opportunity. She has to decide whether to preserve her own life and everything that she's got going for her or whether or not she's going to step up and confront wickedness head on. I don't know if you've ever spent time in Esther yourself. You can read through the book cover to cover in 45 minutes flat. I know that for sure. I did it earlier this week just to test myself. And I know that you can do it if you can keep your mind from getting off on rabbit trails. So it's a very short book. It moves really, really swiftly. There's 10 chapters, but we're not going to do them all. We're going to skip over some verses just to get into the theme of it. Later today, I really encourage you to spend some time in the book of Esther yourself so you can get more of the details. Here's the major characters. Major characters are King Xerxes. Um, he's called in the Bible Ahasuerus. That's his Hebrew name. Xerxes is his Persian name. So both names are used interchangeably throughout the story. He is the king of Persia, what we think of today as modern-day Iran, only a much, much, much bigger territory. That's character number one. Character number two is this individual by the name of Haman. And if you're looking for an evil villain in the story... Haman's your guy, okay? He's an individual who was born in Persia, but he's not a Persian genetically. He comes from another line of people. I'll explain that in a minute. And he despises Jews, hates them to the core. And the next person on the scene is Mordecai, who is a Jew, and he happens to be a cousin of Esther. And she is our fourth person. Her name is Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. You'll see that name mentioned here, but her Persian name, her given name is Ashtar or Ashtar. We pronounce it Esther. So the setting is this. It's 483 BC. Xerxes is on the throne. He is a true blue blood. His grandfather was Cyrus the Great. His father, Darius I. He is a blood of blue bloods. He was raised in the palace. The greatest kingdom this earth has ever known was under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Great, Xerxes, uh, Cyrus the Great. These individuals reigned over empires like we can't begin to imagine. And Xerxes, when he came into power, was fond of calling himself the king of kings. That's the title he liked, and he wanted people to use that for him. We know there's only one true king of kings, right, church? 
But he liked to call himself King of Kings. Matter of fact, he had three titles he required people to pronounce when they came into his presence. First of all, they were to say, the great king, King Xerxes. The king of this great world, King Xerxes. And then they could take another step before him and say, hail, king of kings. That's the way he saw himself. And so this individual had a huge territory, literally stretching from India, all of what we know of as India today, all the way across the Middle East into Africa, the entire continent of Africa, sweeping within it the nation that we know, this little tiny dot on the map of Israel. So everything south of the Greek empire belonged to Xerxes. We're talking about millions upon millions upon millions of people all under his power. We come into chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to move at speed of light sound, or speed of light here. Let's go into the banquet hall. It says in verse 1, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, six months of feasting. So this guy really likes himself. And he doesn't mind opening up all his bank accounts for everyone to see just how great he really is. He really likes his pomp, his splendor, and he's planning a war against Greece. Historical fact, you can go back and research it yourself. This is a period of time where he's planning to assault the Greek empire, and so he gathers all of his nobles, all of his military officials together, and he holds this strategy session, which lasts a really long period of time. Now, we're getting eyewitness accuracy here when we read this because we have very vivid details that historians have backed up, and they've told us three things that we should know about Xerxes. For one, he loves to give sumptuous banquets and drinking parties. The other thing that we know about him is he gives very lavish gifts to people that he liked. And the third thing that you should know about him is he had an irrational temper. He was given to flare on moments without notice. So we move forward into verse 10 with those thoughts in mind. This is the end of 180 days of feasting, and he decides to go on a seven-day drinking binge. This is what it says in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's an Old Testament way of saying he was hammered, okay? He, com- he commanded, verse 11, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, because it's the end of the seven-day drinking party, the crowned queen of Persia decides, I'm not going there. There's no way I'm going to go in there with all those drunken men and just be one more of the king's toys. Now, Jewish scholars, when they examine this passage, say it very clearly indicates in the Hebrew language he was commanding her to appear nude except for the crown on her head. So you can see another reason why she would say, I'm not going in there. So this is her response, verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. His male ego is insulted publicly. And so Xerxes needs a new queen. He's going to trade in Vashti. He doesn't want her anymore. And so his counselors give him some some advice. Skip with me all the way down to verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. Very important point there. 
that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now, when the king wrote something in Persia, it could not be rescinded. Even the king himself could not rescind his own law. Once it was written, it was written, it had to be carried out. So Vashti is considered the best of the best. Among all the people from India to Africa, everything that he rules over, she is the finest of the kingdom. But now they've got to look for someone even better. So they decide to hold a one-year casting call for a new Miss Persia. And this is where we pick the story up, verse 2 of chapter 2. This is the decree that went out. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdoms to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital. Whenever the word harem is used in the Bible, it's specifically speaking of the house of women. That's the very definition that goes with the word. So what we understand when we read that passage is that the fathers did not volunteer their daughters. And the evidence of it is he had to appoint officers to go out and hunt them down specifically doing a town-to-town beauty contest from Africa to India in order to find these beautiful young women. And now enter Mordecai onto the scene, this Jew that we talked about earlier. Now here's the background on Mordecai. His grandparents were brought as captives over to Persia. They were taken as slaves from Israel, just like Daniel was, with King Nebuchadnezzar in power, and taken as captives into Persia and held there. But as for Mordecai himself, he was born in Persia, even though he's Jewish, and he's only known life in Persia, and he understands this king, and he understands this king's reputation. Go with me into verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And this is the first glimpse we get of this young, extremely beautiful Esther. This girl that I'm going to say is probably in her early 20s, maybe 19, but probably 20, 21, somewhere in there, and she's a cousin to Mordecai who is raising her. Go forward with me to verse 7, part B. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. Now Josephus, who is a historian that lived in the first century, writes that at this period of time, among the probably 55 million people under Xerxes' control, they had narrowed it down to 400 girls who had made it into the quarterfinals for this beauty contest. And Esther is one of them, and she's placed in this harem. Now verse 10 is very crucial to understanding the story. It says this, Esther had not made known her people or kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now Mordecai doesn't know what this king's attitude is towards Jews. All he knows is that his grandfather was taken as a slave. And he doesn't know if King Xerxes finds out she's a Jew, if he will kill her. So life outside the walls of the palace for her cousin is terrible. 
because he's raised this young girl. He knows the king's reputation. He fears for her life, and he wants information. But she's locked away behind the palace walls, and he's outside, and all he's left with is worry. But life inside the walls, it is remarkable. She's going through a 12-month transformation process, a literal beauty makeover. As you come into the next verse, verse 12, you see what's going on. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. What we're told by historians is that there was also a prescribed diet. And there was a required class that they had to go to on palace etiquette. And they were all being trained to do one thing, to please King Xerxes. And so we get a first-hand view now of God's providential work because Esther's turn is next. And she's about to come into the king. But she doesn't do what the other girls do. By the time you get down to verse 15, you discover that she's chosen to do something. All the other girls wanted lots of makeup. All the other girls wanted lots of jewelry. Esther leaves all of that behind. She carries with her only her grace and her dignity. And this is what we find in verse 15. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabath, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now back outside the gate of the king's palace, Mordecai is still pacing, wondering what's going on with this young woman that he raised. And he hears information he's not supposed to hear. He hears two men who are bodyguards to the king begin talking about an assassination attempt that they're going to make on King Xerxes. Literally, they're the individuals who stand guard outside his bedroom door, his private bodyguards who watch him sleep at night. Now, when Mordecai relays this information to Esther through a written note that they sneak into the palace, she hears about it. She goes to the king and says, literally, this is what's going to happen. You are about to be assassinated. When King Xerxes hears this, he executes his two bodyguards, and he requires that what had been reported to him was put in the chronicles of the king. Very important detail to remember. Esther literally said, Mordecai, your servant, is reporting to you. So they wrote Mordecai's name into the chronicles of the Persian king. Jump all the way down now to verse 1 of chapter 3. Enter the villain. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So Haman has been elevated. He's in the position of what we might think of as vice president or prime minister. Second in all the land. Unlimited power to him. And one thing Haman cannot stand is a Jew. He hates them. He despises God's people. Now, on the opposite side, no self-respecting son of Abraham would dare bow to an Amalekite, and that is what Haman is. We're told an Agagite, another name for Amalekite. Why? 
going all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, you find King Saul in power. And God had told King Saul, Saul, deal with the Amalekites. They are a godless people. They cannot be in your realm. They need to be wiped out. King Saul didn't do what God had commanded him to do. And so the Amalekites continued to be a thorn in the flesh to the people of God in the Holy Land. Now, that's a feud that's going on between these two races of men. And both Haman knows this and Mordecai knows this. So Mordecai will not bow before him. So other people go to Haman and they say, Haman, there's a guy over here who will not bow before you. You're going by on your white horse, you don't see him, but this Jew over here, he's not honoring you, he is not respecting you. So Haman in return decides to plot a day of execution, but not just for Mordecai. Go forward with me into verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. How big is this kingdom? India to Africa, incorporating all of Israel. In other words, let's go back to Israel and finish what King Nebuchadnezzar started and wipe these cursed people off the face of the earth. There should not be another Jew alive. We don't want them living. Haman is enraged. Now what accounts for that? He's going to use his position to his advantage. He wants to wipe these people out because one man will not bow to him Do you think maybe there's something bigger going on? Maybe someone's behind the scenes manipulating the governments, causing something here to be orchestrated in such a way that he wants to carry out an Old Testament holocaust? You could just substitute Haman's name for Hitler. There's an agenda here to wipe out God's plan, God's purposes. So time passes and he has a plan. And he lays his plan and he puts money with it. That's what you see unfolding next. The plot is hatched, but remember this detail. Haman doesn't know that Esther has a specific background, a Jewish background. Verse 8 says this, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, this is a, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Is he giving full disclosure? Is he telling his commander-in-chief everything the commander-in-chief needs to know? Or is there some kind of a personal agenda here? And he's withholding information. Verse 8 says very specifically, these are a different people. They're weird. They're different than everybody else in your kingdom. They don't behave the way they're supposed to behave. Why, church? because they're separated unto God. They recognize that they're not supposed to function in that system. So here's code for Haman's conversation. Their convictions make me uncomfortable. And he wants to be validated by them. He wants someone to say, you're worthy of bowing down to, and they won't do that. So move forward with me. Look at his price tag. Verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. 
So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Now the king has taken this powerful tool off from his hand, the signet ring which gives literally Haman a passport to the world. He's got all the money in the world, and he's got all the power. He is literally unstoppable at this point. There is nothing that can hold him back. Now, did you notice the fine little detail that Haman took his own personal cash to pay for this? I don't know if you know the detail here in the weights that's being mentioned, but we're told that it's silver, and we're told that it's in the weights of talents. This is an extraordinary amount of money, 375 tons of silver. That's what he's saying, I'm willing to put into the king's treasury. So this is a very, very wealthy man. Here's what he understands. He understands human nature, and he really knows King Xerxes because he's worked with him for a long time. And if you combine money with political purposes, you can accomplish anything and justify anything. So he's brought a proposal literally for a mass slaughter, and the king signs it without even realizing he's jeopardizing his own bride because she will be included in this genocide because the king's laws cannot be repealed, right? So we move forward into verse 13. Here's the literal decree that went out. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions, this is what the wanted poster said, to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. So you've got a combination here of a very wicked man with the most powerful government in the world. Does Satan operate behind the scenes to manipulate governments, trying to thwart God's purposes? That's what you have to keep asking yourself as you go through this story. Now, Mordecai is at a complete loss He is filled with anguish. Move forward into chapter 4, verse 1. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. There was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. The Septuagint, which is a really ancient source, says this. When Mordecai went through the streets, he was screaming at the top of his lungs, a righteous and innocent people is about to be slaughtered. And apparently he repeated this over and over and over again while he's in sackcloth and ashes. Now here's a detail. Mordecai could go no further than the king's gate because he's in mourning. He's got ashes sprinkled on his body. He's wearing sackcloth instead of clothing. And therefore, he can't go before the king's gate because the guards would stop him because the king can't lay eyes on anyone who's in mourning. So he's making so much noise, such a racket in the capital city that Esther's maids actually hear about this. They're on the other side of the wall. And so they say to Esther, there's a guy out there. We think it's your cousin. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, crying out to people about something of destruction. She doesn't know what's going on. Remember, she doesn't understand because she hasn't heard about the agreement. So here's what Esther does. She gathers up some clothing, new clothing, and sends it out to Mordecai. Says, put these on and then come inside the palace and talk to me. Mordecai refuses. He won't do it. He won't go inside the king's palace. 
He stays outside in the city streets. So you see a back and forth conversation unfolding here as we come into verse 7 because Esther wants to know what's going on. Why the distress? Verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that happened to him, meaning the servant that she sent out and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree, that's the wanted poster, of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him. Speak to the king, Esther. You've got his ear. But Persian kings cannot revoke their own law. Once it's written, it's written, and it can't be changed. But Esther also knows one more detail. You cannot go into the presence of the king of kings, quote-unquote, without being summoned. And if the king hasn't requested your presence, that means decapitation. It's instant death. So she fears for her life. I just want to stay out of this nightmare. I don't want to be anything near this. I don't want to be part of that, even though she's got the wanted poster in her hands. She knows this is actually going to happen. So here's what Mordecai is asking Queen Esther to do. He's asking her to reveal her true identity. She has kept a secret from the most powerful man on earth for five years. She hasn't revealed that she's a Jew. And he's asking her to take a stand. Let people know who you really are, Esther. Verse 11 says this, all the king's servants, this is Esther speaking, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So she clearly understands the law. What can I do? Who am I? Sound like Moses? Sound a little bit like Gideon? I am the least of the... What can I do in this situation? So Mordecai tells his cousin, very specifically Esther, the 14th of March is going to come. That's the day that they set for execution. The 14th of March is going to come and go whether you decide to get involved or not. You have to decide how you're going to respond to this because chances are even you will not be spared. Go forward with me into verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So here's a man who's got very clear convictions and confidence. No wonder she has such convictions as you're going to see in just a moment. Because he raised her. And he knows that God's working a plan. God's providential hand is weaving through this tapestry. So he speaks the truth with absolute conviction to her. God has placed you where you are for such a time as this purpose. That harkens all the way back to Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you to will and to work to His good pleasure. Think of that term will again. The desire 
to study, to intently understand God's purposes. So as we move forward into verse 16, we get a real sense now of this young woman's depth. This great statement by Esther gives us an insight into her makeup. Verse 16, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Do you know another 21, 22-year-old with that kind of an attitude? I haven't met many. That is a remarkable statement for a person who has their entire life before them. What is her first action here? Pray. I need to know God's heart. It is God who is at work in you, Esther, both to will and to work for his good purpose. You've got a desire to understand God's purposes? Let's go to prayer. So she's calling them literally to a three-day fast so that they will understand God's heart. They want his will and his clarity. I've come to the observation that after working through these last three heroes and coming to Esther, that she is perhaps more like you and I than any of the other heroes that we've looked at before or maybe the two that are even coming yet. And here's why. Noah had blueprints handed to him from God. Moses got to hear God from a burning bush. Gideon had a face-to-face conversation with the angel of the Lord. But Esther, she doesn't have direct revelation from God. She's got her convictions. She's got what she knows to be true, and she's got to act on that. Esther has no superpowers whatsoever. She doesn't have any other capacity other than what she's been taught and raised with. And here's three things I know that she has within that. She's got a reputation because we've just discovered she's got the favor of the king. And we also understand she's got intellect. This girl is sharp. You're going to see that as this unfolds. And she's got her convictions. So she's got this prayer component to her, and she's really seeking after God's wisdom. But what else does a woman have during a time of distress? I asked this in the last two services, and my wife told me not to ask it in this service because it sounds too sexist, but I'm going to do it anyways, okay? Just don't tell her that I said that. (laughs) Before you walk out on me, just hear me out on this. What does a woman do during a time of great stress? She goes shopping, right? Okay, Bear me out on this, okay, because you're going to see how this, how this unfolds. She puts on new dresses, puts on new clothing, fancy makeup. This is where Esther's going with this. Watch this unfold in, in the next chapter, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. I love this. You've got you to understand how this unfolds here. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You got the picture? She's at one end. He's at the other end. He's got the, got the glow of the palace going on. The king has not been with her in 30 days. She's already told us that. I haven't been summoned by him by 30 days. And now three more days have gone by because of this prayer and fasting. And now suddenly, Miss Persia is standing at the other end of the palace. And she turns to the king and bats her eye in his direction. And she's got on all her royal finery, standing in the glow of the palace light. And Esther is dressed, we're told, in royal splendor. The Hebrew language says she put on her royalty. That means all of her jewels, all of her cosmetics, all of her finest clothing. She puts on her bling, church, 
and saunters into the courtroom of the palace. And Xerxes is on his throne opposite the entrance and can see Miss Persia. And I'm a guy, so I know what he's thinking. Hey, baby. (laughs) How you doing? He knows it's his wife. But he hasn't seen her in quite a while. Now, whatever she looks like on the outside, this is what you know is going on on the inside. The heart is racing. She's trying to appear cool, but this is a very volatile, volatile situation. This king can have her beheaded, and she doesn't know what to expect. That's why she was pleading with her cousin. Now, there's no turning back at this point, right? She stepped into the palace. The king can see her. And in moments like these, it seems like time stands still. You don't know what to expect next. Is God on my side or not? She knows the only way to have her life spared is if the golden scepter tips in her direction. And in that moment, the golden scepter gleans as it leans towards her. And instead of wrath, Esther sees the gleam of the scepter. And she knows she doesn't stand in the wrath of the king. She's been declared worthy to stand in the presence of the king. Watch this in verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. What a beautiful picture, beloved. A beautiful picture because of God's activity in her life. She experiences in the Old Testament what you and I will one day experience when we stand before the true King of Kings. The one who sits on the throne will tip his golden scepter towards you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He will say, come on in. You're worthy to be in my presence. There will be no condemnation. Scripture says that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of Jesus welcoming you. Now, there's, old, there's protocol here that has to be carried forward, and so this ancient protocol requires her to walk up to the throne and put her fingers on the scepter. Watch this. Next verse. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Verse 3, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. Did, did she underestimate her standing before her king? Didn't really grasp it. She, she thought that the king would be someone to be in fear of. She was greatly mistaken. Her view is wrong. The king meant her best intentions, not her worst. But, but that's for another time. Now this Esther decides during this apparently three-day period of time when she's been fasting, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cook my man's supper. So she decides that she's going to make Xerxes his favorite pizza and invite him over for a banquet. I just say pizza because that's something I like, okay? So she invites him to dinner, and she says to him, hey, by the way, bring Haman. Bring Haman along with you. Now, a guy won't turn down a free lunch, right? So he's been invited to the meal. The king shows up. He brings Haman with him, and the king has had this heavy, heavy meal and plenty of wine. They were real drinkers at this period of time. Frank Sinatra's playing in the background, and he finally says to her, Hey, what's the purpose of the banquet? Why did you ask us here? What's going on? No, Esther has a plan and a purpose, and so she says to him, the reason that we have called this banquet 
is to call another banquet. I want you to come back. See, she's very cunning. She's building anticipation, a sense of wanting to know, but she's holding him off at bay. And so in the very best way, she is sharp, she is cunning, and so she builds anticipation. Now, Haman, on the other side, loves this. This is incredibly exciting for him until he goes outside. Watch with me on verse 9. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Now, Haman's really happy. He's had a private meal with the king and queen. And he's got lots of reason to have joy. And he's been invited to another private banquet. But he's got a problem. What do I do with Mordecai? Because the 15th of March is a long ways off, and I want that guy dead now. So he brings his wife and his counselors into his home, and it says this in verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast." This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made seven and a half stories high. Do you think he wanted to make a statement to the kingdom? I'm in charge. This guy who won't bow before me, you see what happens when people won't bow before me? Seven and a half stories high. I won't get into the details of how they hung people at that time, but it was gruesome. Now, the same night of Esther's first banquet, the king can't sleep. Now, the king's had lots of wine, He's had a heavy meal. He's been with Miss Persia, and he can't sleep. What's up with that? Who do you think is behind that? We'll just say God, okay? I'll answer for you. Go forward with me into verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. This is kind of like turning on C-SPAN at 2 in the morning, okay? bored to death but can't sleep. Maybe this thing will lull me into sleep. So he orders them, read to me. Cyrus the Great is his grandfather. Darius the First is his father. His legacy goes back generations. Of all the books that they could grab, of the annals of the chronicles of the king, which book do they grab to bring in to read to him? Verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This final section that we have before us weaves together what has seemed trivial up to now. All kinds of independent happenings are woven together as a beautiful tapestry in which God overrules man's plans. Go forward with me to verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now the hour is late. And the king knows it's not likely there's very many people in the palace, but he says, is anyone present in my court? Is there anyone here? Now, Mordecai has been the target of Haman, right? And Haman is obsessed with killing Mordecai. And apparently the gallows were built all night long, and Haman shows up first thing in the morning because he wants to talk about killing Mordecai. Go forward with me to verse 4. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged. Not really good timing, right? 
Things couldn't possibly be worse for this guy. The carpenters have been working all night long on the gallows, and the attendants say to the king, Haman's here. He just walked in. So the king's response is this, bring him in. Matter of fact, bring him right into my bedroom, into my bedchamber. I need to talk to him now. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? See, he doesn't have a self-confidence issue, right? This guy's incredibly arrogant. He really likes me. Who would he like more than me? He's thinking of me. Now, Haman doesn't need money. We've already established that fact. What does Haman want? He wants prestige. He wants people to bow in his presence. So he comes up with a formula. I want the king's clothing. I want the king's horse. I want power. Look forward with me to verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He must have been ecstatic. I've already had a private banquet with the king and queen, and tonight I get to have another one, and now they want to honor me. What luck! So the king's response delightful. Haman carried out immediately. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and go do so to Mordecai the Jew. What? (laughs) Can you imagine what's racing through him right now? How did this unfold this way? There's no way to adequately, for any speaker, any author, to describe what human Haman is experiencing. He's humiliated. Do you notice that he has to personally clothes Mordecai. Go forward with me to verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (laughs) I'm just thinking that's probably the way he said it, okay? (laughs) I don't think there's a whole lot of life behind it. Verse 12, Haman, he's so upset about this after it's done. Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It's an Old Testament way of saying you're dead. You aren't going to live through this. You can't possibly survive. Uh, They have forgotten a little detail. They're the ones that told him to build the gallows, right? They're the ones that said, go hang him. But they've seemed to let that slip their mind. Now, Haman at this point may not want to attend the queen's second banquet, but he hasn't heard the biggest bombshell drop yet. He thinks he has, but before he can do anything further, look what happens, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, I'm picturing Haman and Xerxes sitting at the dinner table. I can't imagine the conversation except maybe for this detail. Hey, that thing you were going to do for me earlier today with Mordecai and put him on my horse, how'd that go? Did you get that done for me? I'm just imagining this banquet conversation is probably not the direction that Haman wants it to go because there's great irony here. He's just come from lamenting. Everything in my world is going wrong. And when he believes that he's heard the worst, 
Verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Xerxes has to be looking at her in stunned silence. She is asking for her life to be spared, and that of the Jewish people. He has to take just a moment to let this sink in, to grasp what has she just said. I've heard that phrase before, to be killed, destroyed, annihilated. Look at verse 4 very carefully. It's the exact same language as the wanted poster from chapter 2. She's quoting what Haman had ordered to be done. Esther has been sold to be destroyed, to be slaughtered, to be annihilated. The very words of Haman. And in that moment, Haman realizes, do you think the blood is draining from his face? I think he's feeling very, very weak in the knees. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Who dares to threaten my queen? Verse 6, And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified. Haman wet his pants. (laughs) You know it. This has to unfold that way. The king is too angry to speak. Immediately he begins pacing and he rushes out to the king's garden. Go forward with me to verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So Haman's begging for his life, and this is the detail a lot of people miss. He begins falling on his knees right on the sofa where Esther is reclining at, and at that moment, the king walks back into the room. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault a queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. In Persia, when someone was condemned as a criminal and led away to be executed, shroud goes over the head and they take them out. Just like you see being carried on in the Middle East today, they put a shroud over his head. Our hero, Esther, is left to look on in absolute silence. It's quiet. God has woven together a tapestry she couldn't possibly have imagined. And now she's being rescued. But because it's so quiet, the king's attendants decide, hey, we're going to pile on this mess. Go with me into verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. This is poetic justice, folks. Haman will hang on the very gallows he's going to execute Mordecai on, that he wanted to anyways, Verse 10, and the king said, hang him on that. This is where it ends, verse 1, chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, 
And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. I greatly encourage you to read the rest of the story later yourself. It doesn't end there. You can finish it later, but just understand this. God's purposes are always accomplished, even though man tries to thwart them. That's why we have what Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, regardless of the terrible things going on in your life, regardless of the good things going on in your life. It's God that's behind the scenes weaving together a tapestry God's hand in the activities of man is his way about bringing about your good for his will. Now, here's a truth you need to remember as we leave. God's hand doesn't require high visibility. You don't have to be the queen of Persia. You can be Mordecai in the street. God's hand doesn't require high visibility. Here's what it does require. God's people being willing to join him in his work. When God presents an opportunity that we willingly step into it to take a stand that God's people would say, here am I, use me. I want to be identified that way. That's why I love baptism. What you're about to watch is one individual who's going to be baptized right now has a little story to tell. But we know this that God is looking upon this moment like many of you have experienced when you've been baptized. God looks upon this moment as you saying publicly, I take a stand. I'm just like Esther. I want to be identified that I stand with the king of kings, the true one. I am God's person. I'm going to ask God to seal this in our heart and, and just through prayer. Would you do that with me? And then we'll watch the baptism unfold. Father, I pray for each of us. We've heard this story unfold. Some of us, it's very familiar to. For others, it's the first time they've ever heard it. But for each case, God, I ask that you would help us to take the truth of this story with us, that your purposes are always accomplished. There's nothing that man can do to thwart them. God, we give you that honor. We recognize that you are a sovereign king, and providence is your nature. So we leave here this morning asking that you would remind us that even when things are going hard for us, that you are in those as well. Help us, Father, to find you in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our victories that we would give you praise. We would ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.